Section 21 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 1 by Alexander Dumas. Translated by G. B. Ives. Section 21. The Borgias, Chapter 11, Part 2. The ambassadors at last arrived. The first was Monsieur de Villeneuve, the same who had come before to see the Duke of Valentinois in the name of France. Just as he entered Rome, he met on the road a masked man who, without removing his domino, expressed the joy he felt at his arrival. This man was Caesar himself, who did not wish to be recognized, and who took his departure after a short conference without uncovering his face. Monsieur de Villeneuve then entered the city after him, and at the Porta del Popolo found the ambassadors of the various powers, and among them those of Spain and Naples, whose sovereigns were not yet, it is true, in declared hostility to France, though there was already some coolness. The last named, fearing to compromise themselves, merely said to their colleague of France, by way of complimentary address, Sir, you are welcome, whereupon the master of the ceremonies, surprised at the brevity of the greeting, asked if they had nothing else to say. When they replied that they had not, Monsieur de Villeneuve turned his back upon them, remarking that those who had nothing to say required no answer. He then took his place between the Archbishop of Reggia, Governor of Rome, and the Archbishop of Ragusa, and made his way to the Palace of the Holy Apostles, which had been got ready for his reception. Some days later, Maria Giorgi, ambassador extraordinary of Venice, made his arrival. He was commissioned not only to arrange the business on hand with the Pope, but also to convey to Alexander and Caesar the title of Venetian nobles, and to inform them that their names were inscribed in the Golden Book, a favour that both of them had long coveted. Less for the empty honour's sake than for the new influence that this title might confer. Then the Pope went on to bestow the twelve cardinals' hats that had been sold. The new princes of the Church, for Don Diego de Medosta, Archbishop of Seville, Jacques, Archbishop of Oristani, the Pope's Vicar-General, Thomas, Archbishop of Strigania, Piero, Archbishop of Reggio, Governor of Rome, Francesco Baggia, Archbishop of Cosenza, Treasurer-General, Gian, Archbishop of Salerno, Vice-Chamberlain, Luigi Baggia, Archbishop of Valencia, Secretary to His Holiness, and brother of the Gian Borgia whom Caesar had poisoned. Antonio, Bishop of Coma, Gian Battista Ferraro, Bishop of Medena, Amade d'Albre, son of the King of Navarre, brother-in-law of the Duke of Valentinois, and Marco Cornaro, a Venetian noble, in whose person His Holiness rendered back to the Most Serene Republic the favour he had just received. Then, as there was nothing further to detain the Duke of Valentinois at Rome, he only waited to effect a loan from a rich banker named Agostino Chigi, brother of the Lorenzo Chigi, who had perished on the day when the Pope had been nearly killed by the fall of a chimney, and departed for the Romagna, accompanied by Vitellozzo Vitelli, Gian Paolo Baglioni, and Jacopo di Santa Croce, at the time his friends, but later on his victims. His first enterprise was against Pesaro. This was the polite attention of a brother-in-law, and Gian Sforza very well knew what would be its consequences, for instead of attempting to defend his possessions by taking up arms, or venture on negotiations, 
unwilling moreover to expose the fair lands he had ruled so long to the vengeance of an irritated foe he begged his subjects to preserve their former affection towards himself in the hope of better days to come and he fled into dalmatia malatesta lord of rimini followed his example thus the duke of valentinois entered both these towns without striking a single blow caesar left a sufficient garrison behind him and marched on to faenza but there the face of things was changed faenza at that time was under the rule of astor manfredi a brave and handsome young man of eighteen who relying on the love of his subjects towards his family had resolved on defending himself to the uttermost although he had been forsaken by the bentivalli his near relatives and by his allies the venetian and florentines who had not dared to send him any aid because of the affection felt towards caesar by the king of france accordingly when he perceived that the duke of valentinois was marching against him he assembled in hot haste all those of his vassals who were capable of bearing arms together with the few foreign soldiers who were willing to come into his pay and collecting victual and ammunition he took up his position with them inside the town by these defensive preparations caesar was not greatly disconcerted he commanded a magnificent army composed of the finest troops of france and italy led by such men as paolo and giulio orsini vitellozzo vitelli and paolo baglione not to speak of himself that is to say by the first captains of the period so after he had reconnoitred he at once began the siege pitching his camp between the two rivers amana and marziano placing his artillery on the side which faces on forli at which point the besieged army had erected a powerful bastion at the end of a few days busy with entrenchments the breach became practicable and the duke of valentinois ordered an assault and gave the example to his soldiers by being the first to march against the enemy but in spite of his courage and that of his captains beside him astor manfredi made so good a defence that the besiegers were repulsed with great loss of men while one of their bravest leaders honario savella was left behind in the trenches but faenza in spite of the courage and devotion of her defenders could not have held out long against so formidable an army had not winter come to her aid surprised by the rigour of the season with no houses for protection and no trees for fuel as the peasants had destroyed both beforehand the duke of valentinois was forced to raise the siege and take up his winter quarters in the neighbouring towns in order to be quite ready for a return next spring for caesar could not forgive the insult of being held in check by a little town which had enjoyed a long time of peace was governed by a mere boy and deprived of all outside aid and had sworn to take his revenge he therefore broke up his army into three sections sent one-third to imola the second to forli and himself took the third to sassena a third-rate town which was thus suddenly transformed into a city of pleasure and luxury indeed for caesar's active spirit there must needs be no cessation of warfare or festivities so when war was interrupted fates began as magnificent and as exciting as he knew how to make them the days were passed in games and displays of horsemanship the nights in dancing and gallantry for the loveliest woman of the romagna that is to say of the whole world had come hither to make a seraglio for the victor which might have been envied by the sultan of egypt or the emperor of constantinople while the duke of valentinois was making one of his excursions in the neighbourhood of the town with his retinue of flattering nobles and titled courtesans who were always about him he noticed a cortege on the rimini road so numerous that it must surely indicate the approach of someone of importance 
Caesar, soon perceiving that the principal person was a woman, approached, and recognized the very same lady-in-waiting to the Duchess of Urbino, who, on the day of the bullfight, had screamed when Caesar was all but touched by the infuriated beast. At this time she was betrothed, as we mentioned, to Gian Caracciola, general of the Venetians. Elizabeth of Gonzaga, her protectress and grandmother, was now sending her with a suitable retinue to Venice, where the marriage was to take place. Caesar had already been struck by the beauty of this young girl when at Rome, but when he saw her again she appeared more lovely than on the first occasion, so he resolved on the instant that he would keep this fair flower of love for himself, having often before reproached himself for his indifference in passing her by. Therefore, he saluted her as an old acquaintance, inquired whether she was staying any time at Cesena, and ascertained that she was only passing through, travelling by long stages, as she was awaited with much impatience, and that she would spend the coming night at Forli. This was all that Caesar cared to know. He summoned Michelotto, and in a low voice said a few words to him, which were heard by no one else. The cortege only made a halt at the neighbouring town, as the fair bride had said, and started at once for Forley, although the day was already far advanced. But scarcely had a league been covered when a troop of horsemen from Cesena overtook and surrounded them. Although the soldiers in the escort were far from being in sufficient force, they were eager to defend their general's bride, but soon some fell dead, and others, terrified, took to plight. And when the lady came down from her litter to try to escape, the chief seized her in his arms and set her in front of him on his horse. Then, ordering his men to return to Cesena without him, he put his horse to the gallop in a cross-direction, and as the shades of evening were now beginning to fall, he soon disappeared into the darkness. Caracciolo learned the news through one of the fugitives, who declared that he had recognized among the ravishers the Duke of Valentinois' soldiers. At first he thought his ears had deceived him, so hard was it to believe this terrible intelligence. But it was repeated, and he stood for one instant motionless and, as it were, thunderstruck. Then suddenly, with a cry of vengeance, he threw off his stupor and dashed away to the ducal palace, where sat the doge Barberigo and the council of ten. Unannounced he rushed into their midst, the very moment after they had heard of Caesar's outrage. "'Most serene lords,' he cried, "'I am come to bid you farewell, for I am resolved to sacrifice my life to my private vengeance.' though indeed I had hoped to devote it to the service of the Republic. I have been wounded in the soul's noblest part, in my honour. The dearest thing I possessed, my wife, has been stolen from me, and the thief is the most treacherous, the most impious, the most infamous of men. It is Valentinois. My lords, I beg you will not be offended if I speak thus of a man whose boast it is to be a member of your noble ranks, and to enjoy your protection. It is not so. He lies, and his loose and criminal life has made him unworthy of such honours, even as he is unworthy of the life whereof my sword shall deprive him. In truth, his very birth was a sacrilege. He is a fratricide, a usurper of the goods of other men, an oppressor of the innocent, and a highway assassin. He is a man who will violate every law, even the law of hospitality respected by the various barbarian. A man who will do violence to a virgin who is passing through his own country, where she had every right to expect from him not only the consideration due to her sex and condition, but also that which is due to the most serene republic, whose condottieri I am, and which is insulted in my person and in the dishonouring of my bride. This man, I say, merits indeed to die by another hand than mine. 
yet since he who ought to punish him is not for him a prince and judge but only a father quite as guilty as the son i myself will seek him out and i will sacrifice my own life not only in avenging my own injury and the blood of so many innocent beings but also in promoting the welfare of the most serene republic on which it is his ambition to trample when he has accomplished the ruin of the other princes of italy the doge and the senators who as we said were already apprised of the event that had brought caracciolo before them listened with great interest and profound indignation for they as he told them were themselves insulted in the person of their general they all swore on their honour that if he would put the matter in their hands and not yield to his rage which could only work his own undoing either his bride should be rendered up to him without a smirch upon her bridal veil or else a punishment should be dealt out proportioned to the affront and without delay as a proof of the energy wherewith the noble tribunal would take action in the affair luigi manetti secretary to the ten was sent to imola where the duke was reported to be that he might explain to him the great displeasure with which the most serene republic viewed the outrage perpetrated upon the condottiere at the same time the council of ten and the doge sought out the french ambassador entreating him to join with them and repair in person with menenti to the duke of valentinois and summon him in the name of king louis the twelfth immediately to send back to venice the lady he had carried off the two messengers arrived at imola where they found caesar who listened to their complaint with every mark of utter astonishment denying that he had been in any way connected with the crime nay authorising menenti and the french ambassador to pursue the culprits and promising that he would himself have the most active search carried on the duke appeared to act in such complete good faith that the envoys were for the moment hoodwinked and themselves undertook a search of the most careful nature they accordingly repaired to the exact spot and began to procure information on the high road there had been found dead and wounded a man had been seen going by at a gallop carrying a woman in distress on his saddle he had soon left the beaten track and plunged across country a peasant coming home from working in the fields had seen him appear and vanish again like a shadow taking the direction of a lonely house an old woman declared that she had seen him go into this house but the next night the house was gone as though by enchantment and the ploughshare had passed over where it stood so that none could say what had become of her whom they sought for those who had dwelt in the house and even the house itself were there no longer menenti and the french ambassador returned to venice and related what the duke had said what they had done and how all search had been in vain no one doubted that caesar was the culprit but none could prove it so the most serene republic which could not considering their war with the turks be involved with the pope forbade caracciola to take any sort of private vengeance and so the talk grew gradually less and at last the occurrence was no more mentioned but the pleasures of the winter had not diverted caesar's mind from his plans about faenza scarcely did the spring season allow him to go into the country than he marched anew upon the town camped opposite the castle and making a new breach ordered a general assault himself going up first of all but in spite of the courage he personally displayed and the able seconding of his soldiers they were repulsed by astor who at the head of his men defended the breach while even the women at the top of the rampart rolled down stones and trunks of trees upon the besiegers after an hour's struggle man to man caesar was forced to retire leaving two thousand men in the trenches about the town and among the two thousand one of his bravest condottieri valentino farnese 
then seeing that neither excommunications nor assaults could help him caesar converted the siege into a blockade all the roads leading to faenza were cut off all communications stopped and further as various signs of revolt had been remarked at Cesena, a governor was installed there whose powerful will was well known to caesar ramiro d'orco with powers of life and death over the inhabitants he then waited quietly before faenza till hunger should drive out the citizens from those walls they defended with such vehement enthusiasm at the end of a month during which the people of faenza had suffered all the horrors of famine delegates came out to parley with caesar with a view to capitulation caesar who still had plenty to do in the romagna was less hard to satisfy than might have been expected and the town yielded on condition that he should not touch either the persons or the belongings of the inhabitants that alstor manfredi the youthful ruler should have the privilege of retiring whenever he pleased and should enjoy the revenue of his patrimony wherever he might be the conditions were faithfully kept so far as the inhabitants were concerned but caesar when he had seen astor whom he did not know before was seized by a strange passion for this beautiful youth who was like a woman he kept him by his side in his own army showing him honours befitting a young prince and evincing before the eyes of all the strongest affection for him one day astor disappeared just as caracciolo's bride had disappeared and no one knew what had become of him caesar himself appeared very uneasy saying that he had no doubt made his escape somewhere and in order to give credence to this story he sent out couriers to seek him in all directions a year after this double disappearance there was picked up in the tiber a little below the castle sant'angelo the body of a beautiful woman her hands bound together behind her back and also the corpse of a handsome youth with the bowstring he had been strangled with tied around his neck the girl was caracciolo's bride the young man was astor during the last year both had been the slaves of caesar's pleasures now tired of them he had had them thrown into the tiber the capture of faenza had brought to caesar the title of duke of romagna which was first bestowed on him by the pope in full consistory and afterwards ratified by the king of hungary the republic of venice and the kings of castile and portugal the news of the ratification arrived at rome on the eve of the day on which the people are accustomed to keep the anniversary of the foundation of the eternal city this fate which went back to the days of pomponius Laetus, acquired a new splendour in their eyes from the joyful events that had just happened to their sovereign as a sign of joy cannon were fired all day long in the evening there were illuminations and bonfires and during part of the night the prince of squillace with the chief lords of the roman nobility marched about the streets bearing torches and exclaiming long live alexander long live caesar long live the borgias long live the orsini long live the duke of romagna end of section twenty one